Welcome to KBCast, the podcast for security executives, interviewing people from around the globe on how organizations can operate smarter and stay safer. Here's Carissa Breen. I recently spoke with Raphael and we discussed his near-death experience and how that propelled him to think outside the box and how he approached security. We covered a variety of topics including real versus perceived threats and how security teams need to be communicating these internally. If you'd like to know more, then please keep on listening. Okay, so Raphael, I remember you meeting you actually, I think it was last year I did personal branding workshop and you were traveling through Sydney and you happened to come along. Something inside of me was like, oh, this guy's really curious about certain things. And then I was like, I've got to get him on the podcast. So it's taken me this long to get you on the podcast and I apologize. I've been following some of your updates online. I'm seeing some of your stuff. So I'm definitely super keen to get your thoughts and opinions on some questions that I think that are really relevant in today's industry. But before we get into that, I'd like to start off knowing about your journey. And can you walk our listeners through where you started to where you are now? Yes, of course. And thank you for inviting me. It's good to catch up with you. Well, I started from uh, from the beginning. I started my career in IT about 20 years ago when I was studying back at uni, my bachelor's in systems engineering, building some websites focused mostly on software development. And I started to experiment with vulnerabilities at that time. And I saw how easy it was to hack into systems, which led me to become a software security development. And then I started to be a consulting and consulting space and then leading teams uh, for multinational organizations. At some point, I immigrated to Australia, just seeking new adventures. Um, Then I started a software developer gig with uh, Virgin Australia, turning to security operations, leadership, advisory. Uh, As I progressed my career, I moved to Allianz Worldwide Partners um, as an information security officer, dash head of IT security. And I'm now an information security manager for Workover. My specialization is on security strategy and leadership, but I feel that the more progress on my career, I become more of a marketer because my role is to communicate, influence people, so these people can make decisions and exercise good judgment to protect the business value. I think at the time when we were talking, it was more about self-promoting the brand and how to manage negativity and positivity on the social media. Um, mm-hmm. from, from what I remember at the time, you explained to me, uh, well, I said, well, how do we manage all this negativity that surrounds cyber? And if I don't remember this incorrectly, you say, well, once people start to be too negative on social media, they start to become that guy. You know, yeah, it's that guy that's always putting mm-hmm. negative feedback. So we started to go into that sideline of how to, well, on, on how to build your own brand and the positive turn that it need, you need to handle in order to, to become a more an influencer. Otherwise, you get relegated to the, to the side. And yeah, I fully agree with that at that time. I think that's what we're discussing at that time. Yeah, that's right. And you're right when you say that guy, because they, there is that guy or that lady that has those negative connotations associated with them by what they publish, by how they communicate to people in the industry online. And there's nothing wrong with disagreeing. And I always say that there's nothing wrong with difference of opinions. That's how we learn and and grow and and evolve. But one of the things that I don't agree with is if people are just blatantly rude, disrespectful, derogatory, racist, uh, sexist, there's still that online. And I just don't think that it really helps anyone. And it definitely doesn't help the person who's trying to one-up someone. It actually makes them look really, really bad. And I don't know how many ways I can try to explain that. And I think it's really just people having self-awareness and understanding that, oh, if I say this, I am going to be that guy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agree. Fully agree. I think I tied up to, to at the end, leave a constructive note. It doesn't matter if there's a disagreement, but what are we doing to do something of change? What are we doing to make it better? And this is what I think it fails. Uh, Some people fail. Mm. So when you say some people, like, can you give an example of what you're seeing? What type of things are you sort of seeing that people are doing that doesn't really help the industry? Yeah, well, uh, I think that there's a couple of things. Right? I think that I've seen particularly a couple of guys that move into the penetration testing that are always posting uh, the breaches that some companies go through and how badly are, the, the, are those companies dealing with that. And that's it. That's the point. In that respect, giving a, a criticism is okay as long as there is a solution or, or I, I propose an idea because otherwise finger pointing is not going to be 
any use for this comparison or, or anyone else. Because at the end, we all will be we all have a data breach. It, it's the, the data that's around is just too much to protect everywhere. And we have to find better ways to deal with data breaches and the like. Just pointing fingers and say, these guys are, uh, are doing bad and they're not doing enough and stop. It's not going to be of assistance to whoever suffered the breach, the people affected by the breach, or anyone surrounding it. It much more will be better to say, give advice. For example, I, will, I, I think if the same people would say, okay, these people got breached, but if you have been breached, call this number, call the, call the ACAC, they will help you. Call IK, ID Care, call these people. This is how you can get help. Um, and I think that's a bit the, the part that might be missing, uh, too much negativity in an already threatening topic as, as mm-hmm. cybersecurity. No, you're right. And I think one of the things that I wanted to understand from your opinion, because you, you're obviously in a leadership role, you've held multiple leadership roles. What's your sort of read on it when you're seeing, like you said, these guys in, in pen testing that are putting up, oh, so-and-so company got hacked, uh, they got owned or whatever it is. What's your sort of feedback when you're reading stuff like this, considering you're in a leadership position, which means that you have influence over what you're, what you're doing with your team and the security direction of your organization? How are you sort of responding to people's opinions online that aren't giving a solution, like you said? Uh, well, I, I think the only problem is that, that uh, there's, a, there's a way when we can create facts and obtain facts and use those facts to protect our own, our own organizations and give some awareness to executives or stakeholders or on real life examples like this. Yes, this is happening. And yes, we need to protect ourselves from this that is happening. But when people get bombarded with this, everything is wrong, everyone is hacked, everyone is losing data, then there's, there's a couple of things. One, people become desensitized to, to the message. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, am I going to hear this so often that I just don't care anymore? And the yeah. way I see it, it's a bit that uh, limbic brain part that uh, fights, flees, uh, or gets steady and get, uh, gets uh, paralyzed. When people hear that too much, they, they either can try to fight it, try to flee and say, oh, this is not happening. It will never happen to me. I don't care. Or just be paralyzed. Like, well, if it's going to happen anywhere, anywhere why, we, why do we do something? Why do I need to invest my money on this? Mm-hmm. And the, posi- the, 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 the positive turn that I try to give to these messages is, look, these people, we always suffer. We all will suffer a breach. There's everyone will suffer a breach at some point or most companies. It's just too complex to try to defend all the touch points on any company. So it's better that we are prepared. Yes, we will face it, but are we prepared to deal with that? Are we ready? You know, what assurance are we giving to our customers? What assurance are we giving to the board? And what are our weak points? So in trying to that, trying that positive uh, spin, it's a bit more easy when, when you do it internally. But online, it's a bit of an open statement huh? mm-hmm. on, on, on the negative side. So the challenge of turning that negative context into a positive context well, I guess that it's easier to write only the negative, but it's a bit more complex to write. What can you do about that? So I think that that would be my, my view on that. If mm-hmm. people can post not only the negative, but how to deal with the negative, it will not only help themselves, but it will help other companies to understand how this data, how these details about the bridge will be useful to that company mm-hmm. to, to protect themselves. Yeah. No, you're right. I'd like to... Take a moment and talk more about your near-death experience and how that really jumps out of your path to mindfulness. Yeah, yes, this is uh, I, this is just you know, quite an interesting story that usually I keep to myself, but it's it's a sake of openness. So when I was back in Mexico, I was doing a crazy hours in IT, uh, as everyone does over there. It's common to uh, hear from people that work anything between ten to fourteen hours per day sometime with weekends. Now, I was working hard. I was not really having too much conversations with family or friends. Uh, I was making, making lots of money and, and, and pretty good financially. And then I sort of a, a virus. It felt like I had a flu. After two months of having that flu, I just couldn't start work anymore. And then mm-hmm. I, I was talking to, to the emergency room. I started losing my vision. I started losing uh, my, my, the, the, uh, my work uh, and the lung capacity to breathe. So eventually a doctor figured out that there was something called uh, Miller-Fisher or Guillain-Barre, which is a virus that attacks the, uh, the nervous system. So what it did to me or that it was caused is that I started to lose my nervous system and without the breathing capacity. So then um, 
when I was, I, I stayed about in ER for about 10 days and they basically told me, well, you better arrange your papers, your paperwork, because you have a 50% chance of dying. So those oh. 10 days, <laughs> yeah, those 10 days in ER and, and uh, look, I know it sounds fanta- fantastic, but it did happen. I was there after seeing the light, the tunnel, the light, and the person at the end saying, it's not your time yet and returning. I mean, 10 days confined into ER in tubes and just thinking of what's going to happen, started to reassess my life choices. I started to realize that I would not take forward anything that I had accumulated. If at all, I will bring my own experiences. But what was the impact that I caused in people? At the time, at that time, I thought, well, the impact on people that I have is I'm not here for my family. I'm just looking for the next gig, which is paying well. And I'm getting what it's in for me. Then I started to shift and say, well, what can I do to change this? What, what is the difference that this, what is the lessons that this is getting to me? How am, I, how, how am I going to overcome this and how am I going to become stronger? And for some reason, I started to think it's on the positive impression and the positive value that I deliver to others. So this change of view led me to start studying more about why was I being so self-protective and so risk averse and led me to learn more, more about uh, some religion, neuroscience, and that understanding of the limbic brain, which is the one that protects us and makes us to want to accumulate things, and led me to meditation, which started to move to the path of, okay, how can I deliver most value, and how can I get away from my own constructed reality of my mind, and be more present in the real, in the real life, and making a change or a positive change to be, or a positive value to, to everyone surrounding me. And that's how I started to, to have that journey. Like, it's been like a 10-year-old journey on, on this path. And of course, uh, now I try to apply it on every stage of my life, but mostly on cyber, because I feel it, it's just quite challenging to manage such a threatening topic on a, in, on a mindful way. Because that's what I might believe, that's what the limbic brain does. It jumps straight on the, oh, alert, that's something happening. So how can I take a step back, kind of breathe, let it sink, not think, and then act? And how can I convince people to do the same? Or how can I influence people to do the same? Wow. Well, firstly, thanks. Thanks for sharing that story. I think that uh, something that we've never really had on our podcast before, people really being opening up and vulnerable about certain aspects of their life. And I think that uh, maybe a lot of people listening that can potentially relate uh, to your story or can definitely gain something from your experience uh, through that. And I think one of the things that you you mentioned, threatening topics on a mindful brain. So is that what you meant by just taking a moment, taking a breath? Because like you said, especially in your types of roles, it is full on. There's always something happening. Do you think that people will just get really caught up and, and just racing all of the time and not really taking a moment to have that clarity before they make a decision? Yes, of course. So, so what I think based on what I've studied is, um, I would say the limbic brain, it's, it's that part of our brain that makes us see a stick that looks like a snake and then jump out. Right? Mm-hmm. So that is the brain that is not taking the, the part of the brain that is not taking the time to assess if that brown, elongated, threatening stick is really a snake or not. We just have to jump out. Right? But mm-hmm. this is the stuff that makes us survive as a species. Now, the thing about this is that if we're not fully mindful or aware that this might be happening, this translates into our life and in cyber as well. Like, oh, there's a cyber threat. Oh, there's a breach. There's a phishing campaign. There's this new law. So it's, it's easier to start and jumping into the, oh, oh let's panic. How, what, what are we doing about this? And not take a step back and say, well, are we really affected by this? How is this affecting our deliveries? Or how do we translate the message? into a way that people will understand and not jump into panic mode and start to, again, be more mindful and more, uh, uh, more intuitive in dealing with this, with this mm-hmm. new phishing threat, regulation, virus, whatever you call it. So why do I, how do we avoid, avoid crying wolf and be more present and realistic in, in, in what we're dealing with? Uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's quite challenging in general for practitioners as well as, as people affected by this. To take a to take a step back, but it's possible. Is that what sort of inspired you to bring this these types of practices into your into your work because you can see the benefits of it and the study that you've been doing, and has that sort of then sparked you to educate people on sort of self awareness? 
Yes, that's correct. Uh, I found that uh, when I craft messages, well, based on a number of years and a vast amount of mistakes, I found that people react much better when we when we educate them to be mindful on on cyber. Uh, this in practical in, in practical steps, this is the stop, think, act. You know, stop, don't react. Think what are, what are you how are you going to react, and then take an action. But when I when I take the message, I convey, I always carry the same message to be intuitive, take a step back, take a breath, and then make, and then exercise your judgment when you're reacting to cyber at home, at work, or anywhere. Because this, this, this landscape is not only affecting businesses, it's affecting people at their homes as well. It's affecting senior people. It's affecting almost anywhere. Um, you know, Australia is a major target due to the financial capacity that we have here and the trust that we have in other people. That that is being exploited. So how can we craft a message for all our people to say, you know, even that someone is asking for my help, even that someone is yelling at me, even that someone is being threatening me, how can I put that myself in that distance, that put a distance between me and my response? How can I make my judgment? How I do I not, not react? And when I, that's when we crafted or I craft messages that emotionally connect to people. Say, look, don't, don't have a process one, two, three. You can do that, but it's not easy to exercise once you're dealing with something critical. Instead, use your gut feel, use your intuition, take a pause. Once we take a pause and we make that connection telling them, you can take a pause, then people will have a more space to think about what we're doing and much, a much trust in themselves to do the right thing, to react much better uh, before that threat. You spoke before about, do you see this as a bit challenging for certain people? Why do you think that's the case? Is it because people just aren't really used to it? It's not something like mindfulness is sort of a, it's come around recently in terms of the word, like the wording of it and that sort of that buzzword. Do you think it's just because no one's really ever told us this stuff before? Like no one teaches this in universities, no one teaches this in any sort of certification or any type of formal training. Is that what the challenge is that you're sort of seeing in people to, to adopt this approach? Well, mindfulness is a bit of a bossy trend right now, a boss. It's, it's a trend right now. And the thing is, um, it, it's funny. Like, if you ask me, I feel it's a bit like the Western world waking up to the idea that we can take a pause and that we don't need to live this accelerated life, uh, just buying things and get bombarded by it what we have to have and how we need to respond quickly and the way that we have to compete in the, in the, in the Western society. I think uh, progressively we in general, uh, the people in Australia and many parts of the world are taking this ownership of their own selves or are starting to realize that it's, it's okay that we take some space uh, it's okay to take the space and it's okay to think and not react quickly as is expected from us. So once we, I, I observe that a bit more, I see that everywhere. You know, I see this in the way that we do the media. It's always responding. It's always responding to something. It's always responding to something. Instagram, Facebook, television. But once you start, um, people that start doing your yoga uh, or any other mindful practice, any other meditation, even, even with religion, looking more within themselves is easier to make that space. And give yourself a bit more more time to to have better outcomes rather than fast outcomes. Fast is fine uh, as long as, as it's the right thing to do. If when fast is not the right thing to do, then then we have a problem. Um, how is it teach? Well, it's I think it's a, it's a, a couple of generations that have been implementing this. You know, I think that the previous generation was too busy getting out of poverty, war, and the like. My generation has more time to dig inside of us and, and be more aware. And the next generation, I think they're living quite fast, but at the same time, in freedom and more rich of information. So this kind of information is easy to get into their hands. Mm. Should they wish to apply it? Should it be teached? Well, there's some schools in the US that are teaching meditation. I know that some schools in Queensland are starting to teach mindfulness to, to, to children. A number of corporations are embedding mindfulness. So in general, I see quite a change since the 10 years I've been doing this, particularly the last couple of years have made quite a difference. Um, I see more acceptance within this idea of being mindful. Mm, I think you're always going to take that moment to think about how you are going to respond because 
if you're doing that knee-jerk reaction, like you said, just doing things fast doesn't necessarily mean it's the best way. So I definitely agree, especially when you are dealing with security, that things are going to happen all of the time. It also can be, because um, I've actually read a bit of this stuff as well, um, about your brain and stuff like that in terms of the neuroscience. And I think one of the things is, is it can be quite exhausting as well if you're constantly in a state of trying to fight or flight. Uh, it can really exhaust your mind and your body. So I think it's something that we shouldn't be in that constant state and have that moment to actually then think about what we're going to do and then respond, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. it's like adrenal fatigue. You know, all, all your adrenal glands are fatigued because they're always releasing chemicals to fight or flight. Yeah, and I, I know it really just active. Sometimes it could be acting out of compulsiveness. And this is something that it's very, it's a subtle tone that it's, it's sometimes what, what we practice is, is more noticeable. One, detecting one, one so, oneself or myself is acting out of compulsiveness rather mm-hmm. than a full presence. What I'd like to talk to you about now is your opinion on the open office initiative, investing in relationships and sort of staying away from the basement. And I ask this because security has traditionally been more of its own silo. And lately I'm seeing more leaders opening up about this topic, whether it's on their podcast or just online and how they are trying to integrate more with the business. During the last years, it has become more clear that cyber, cybersecurity is something that everyone needs to do and everyone is responsible for, uh, rather than allocating all the responsibility to a security team in a business or a government or a business if you're at home. Um, the trend that I've seen now, and it's becoming more clear, is that the cyber securities are moving from being policemen and saying, you can do this, you can do this, you can find, I'm behind you, to become doctors. So I said, look, you shouldn't be doing this. This is a, this is a risky behavior. But if you're proceeding, we will support you, but you have to sign it off. So it's that communication piece, it, it needs to be divulged within the organization. In order to influence more people, in order to, to spread communications, I implemented this, what I call the open office, which is literally open office. Anyone can come with any questions at almost any time. So what, what this causes is for people to start to release every sort of questions and some of them have been quite surprising some of them have been quite challenging but what what the results in that is that people start to be more trustful in the security team and be more open and this leads to start uncovering things that otherwise security will not be able to to to, to surface like for example but once there's more gain uh, there's more trust being gained then people start to bring holes either in processes or in software or, or flaws that they found within themselves, but they were not able to report because of fear or unknownness or the like. Um, the thing about the open office as well is that it cannot be judgment. It cannot be with a judgment. It cannot be with a reprimand. If someone did the wrong thing, it's fine to tell them what is the cause of the thing that they have done and how to prevent it later. But the moment that someone is reprimanded or feel that they've done the wrong thing and they're being judged, then they're not, they're not going to come back. Once you see people that they, they tell each other, oh, I just went to the security team. I told them that um, I fell for a fish and they were nice about it. They told me to whatever, change my passwords, uh, change my MFA, whatever technical company. And then they told me to do this. And now I can do this at home. And then they tell other people and then other people come as well. So it becomes a chain of trust where people bring forward and they're, they're security needs. And I think this is very important because cyber, as we see in the media, as we see in LinkedIn, as we see in the news, is very threatening. This this image of a hoodie hacker mm-hmm. hacking into your systems and getting your data and opening a loan for you and God knows why. So once we say, look, yeah, this happens, but we're here to help you. Oh, thank you for telling me. We will do something about it. Or, or they're like, like oh, look, this is a big mistake but this is how we correct it. And we will put something in place to prevent it from happening again. Then it becomes a constructive chat. And it, it does become a, a better, I know better than you, or why do you do this? It's more like, we find a solution for you, let's find it together. It, it's way more effective and it's, it's more efficient in, in, in gaining uh, the trust of people. The disclaimer of the open office, and it's, this is very clear, it takes a lot of uh, resources. Um, it takes a lot of time because people, more people come and come and you have to stop activities. And people can come with any sort of questions, uh, some more interesting than others. Um, I, 
the examples that I uh, think is one lady that asked me to install a, a virus because it was attached to a program that was very useful. So look, okay. yeah. Right. <laughs> it was, okay, I, I understand your question. And, uh, <laughs> but this is why we don't do it. We don't do we don't <laughs> a virus for a sake of a problem because you will find that useful. And right. the other one was with a CEO that asked me uh, why it's so important to, to, to protect an email if the information of an email, of a, a person email is not that important or it's, it's not really an a important corporate asset. So I thought at the time I, I was a bit perplexed. So, okay, I, I thought, I thought you would know this, but it doesn't matter. You, you're seeing this from the strategic point of view. So then we continued on, on, on giving an answer that will satisfy the executive needs. So it's, it's interesting. Uh, it's surprising, but it's also, it's, it's also fulfilling knowing that they're prepared, your team is preparing people to be cyber savvy, if you like, and prepared. So why do you think security has traditionally been sort of the basement? Uh, I've spoken to a number of people actually on the podcast uh, recently, but just in general, uh, why do you think that they they have sort of kept to themselves rather than trying to go out and be collaborative, similar to what you've been speaking about? Well, I think it's because of, I would say it's two streams to this question. One is that cybersecurity is technically complex. Um, it, it has, a, it has a surface of security is just so vast. I would think it's one of the most vast or most uh, extensive uh, fields that exist right now because we have to cover so many aspects of security from financial, strategic, law, technical, operational, strategic. It's not easy to do this stuff. On top of that, there's a lot of technicalities then that it's at the time it can be difficult to translate, in, uh, translate them to people that are not familiar with the terms. Um, this tied to mindfulness, people, security especially, sometimes don't put themselves on the context of the people receiving information. Mm. People tend to communicate on their own context, which is not so much, uh, it's not so much on considering what's the, the target audience. How are we going to put the language in something that they will understand? Then communication is not easy. Then I have to stay back because no one understands me and no one listens to me. Well, it's, in my view, it's mostly because we haven't been able, or the person haven't been able, to translate to a message that is easily understood by the business or by the stakeholder. The other stream that I was thinking of is that many, many professionals, and I would, say, I would say this in all sort of industries, think within their context and what's the benefit and the needs for them and what they need to deliver. Cybersecurity is the same. It's okay, what do I need to deliver? How do I need to protect? What do I need to do? Uh, what do I need to protect my business from? But there are, there are some people, but not many that translate what we do into uh, supporting what the business is doing. So if, you, if you ask a lot of people, why, a lot of IT people, why are you doing what you're doing? Mm-hmm. They say, well, because we're putting the systems up or because we're running systems that need to be on. Yeah, but why? Because we have customers. Okay, what do we do for the customers? And they get lost. And I'm sure it's the same with security. You know? Why are we doing these firewalls, emails, and the like? And like, why? Oh, because we protect our company. Okay, how are we supporting our business? What's, what's the mission and the vision of our business? How are we supporting our vision? And then there's silence. So to me, the, the breakout of my career, what I feel made the difference is when I started to understand that stakeholders, executives, and anyone outside security care for security, but care about more about the delivery. So how do you translate what you're doing into a value or into a tangible value to support what people are doing, what people are delivering, the service are delivering? Uh, which can't be translated into protecting the customer details, uh, availability of the systems, protecting the revenue and the like. But making that bridge and that translation can be the difference between getting back in or getting back into the basement. So do you think this translating uh, deficiency has been the shortfall of security sort of moving forward in your experience? I think so. I think, and I, give, I think it's based on the foundations of security, which come from technical, uh, technical languages. So as people or cybersecurity leaders more move more and become more aware of the of the people factor or the strategy factor, then the conversations become uh, uh, easier, more easy. If you see a security operations team as SOC, you wouldn't put them in touch directly with an executive unless they're really well trained. But the the language that each level uh, of a strategy of management uses is quite important to communicate. Um, I feel it's changing, but I think it's, yes, it's a residual from the discipline that we follow. It was mostly technical, which now it's moving more to a strategic place, more people place. 
One thing I've, I find interesting that I've asked multiple people again on the podcast is people who are super technical, for some reason, I feel that they try to position themselves as better than people who potentially are more hybrid, uh, like doing the translating or people that really are not technical, but are very good at communicating, for example. So what's your sort of response to that? Because I see it a lot online, like, oh, well, you're not technical, so you're sort of redundant, whereas I don't think that's the case. I think it's just changing face now. I think there's needs for both, but I don't think one's better than the other. But I still do see a lot of super technical people going around thinking that they are better than other people in industry because of what they do day to day. But I'm hearing a lot more leadership type of positions sort of say like, no, that's not necessarily the case. We actually do value people that can communicate, that can understand the technical, but communicate in ways that people understand. That's just something that I'm seeing. And it's something that I like to keep asking about because I don't, again, I don't think it's that really that helpful. Mm. Well, I think it's, we we need those technical people. Those technical people are the ones that dive into the dark sides of security and do all the all the all the interesting stuff and and the very mentally challenging and technically challenging stuff. If I had a message, I was I feel like I was one of them. You know, I was very technical and I was getting quite frustrated when the business when I didn't have any buy-in from the business, despite mm-hmm. keeping evidence that we needed that. What I work for myself and I would say to other people is learn about if not mindfulness, learn about what is in for the people hearing your message. Know what's in for you, know what's fun for you, know what it's needed for you and, and how are you protecting or, or defending against this. Think about what is in for them, for the people that are listening to your message. Then the context will change. Yeah? If I tell someone we receive 100 attacks per day and with a 50% efficiency, and they're coming with a touch with a uh, Emonet or Emonet uh, Trojan, mm-hmm. I can be quite smart, but that doesn't mean anything. When I said to someone, someone say we have an increased number of attacks that people are falling through, which are increasing our risk and our potential loss to data breaches, that's the language. So it's better to use the language and then you can give it technicalities. Otherwise, it's speaking Japanese versus English. You know, it's, it's the message. If you want something from them, use their language. Don't mm-hmm. use yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Agreed. It's not, Agreed. It's not for you. It's for them. Agreed. Let's talk about real versus perceived threat. So communicating real risks, staying away from promoting uncertainty and fear, because I see a lot of fear promoted on the communication level that you just discussed before, that's online in the media. So can you sort of explain from your point of view why people should stop communicating in this way specifically? Well, I think it boils down to a single story. Is it boy that cried wolf? What we see in security is where we are always alerting. Well, we're not always alerting, but we are very aware of all the alerts that are happening. And you will see that with time, once this message is across the organization and say, this happened to these people, this happened to these people, this bridge happened to these people, and this virus happened to these people, eventually someone will ask, oh, well, but it hasn't happened to us. So why do we care? And and that's sort of the, the, the being desensitized. You know? I hear it so often that I just mm-hmm. don't care anymore because one, it doesn't happen to me, or two, it's just too much. Why do I even bother? Why, why, do, I have, why do I have to care? Mm-hmm. So, the at least my goal from there has been moving from that permanent fear and exhausting position of putting people into fear on a permanent state to move into a sense of we are always working and we will be continue to working on protecting our company because yes there are threats out there and yes we can get breached but we are prepared and we I think if I if I could simplify it it's something like we have your back. No, you do what you're doing because you have your back. So get me quite involved. I, I, I get me informed. I will inform you. But let's let's get this symbiosis. You know, we keep involved as a stakeholder, and we assess you. We tell you what your risks are. We help you to manage your risks. There will be some risks that will remain, and they will be on, and they will be managed, and, and be aware of this. But the reality and the facts are this, and this this is the reality that we're seeing. All these imaginations and mind trips into what the worst could happen, it's okay to consider them, but making them a reality and bringing them to the company is not going to be productive. It's not a sustainable strategy. It's better when we say this is what we have in place to protect us from from these things. And if we don't want to do something about this specific threat that is very specific to us, we can do that, but just be aware that we are running a risk and someone in this company owns that risk. And there's a potential damage to the company, call it reputation, call it jail time, call it a breach to a law, 
that someone needs to sign off. So it becomes a more a tangible conversation rather than just, a, as you say, a limbic, adrenaline-exhausting conversation, like everything is wrong, everything is bad, everything could happen. No. We uh, know what could happen. We manage the risk, we accept. Some, ta- some things we don't know what could happen. We are prepared with an incident response. And the things that we know, the things that we can do, these are the things that we can do and the maturity level that we have and where we're going. It's an assurance space. It's a digital trust space rather than a jumpy space of there's so many things wrong that have happened that I cannot handle them. It's, yes, we can handle them. This is how we do it. So like, why do you think there's so much negative talk around the whole cyberspace? Like you said, it's a threatening language. Why do you think people are going about it like that anyway, in just your experience? Like, I'm just curious. It's almost like a mystic, cyber is like a mystic experience. You know? it's, um, I, if I wasn't technical and I saw someone in the news saying, oh, these guys took over my email account and opened an email, uh, an account, a bank account and, and took all my data, it would be like, oh my God, that's magic. How do they make it? <laughs> and I would be, oh, can that happen to me? And I just be a bit petrified. And that is the exploitable part of the news. The problem with this is that the security at times cannot be very tangible until something happens. Because basically we're fighting off risks and fighting off threats. The way we can have some metrics on how many attacks we deferred, but we cannot be very specific on how much damage we, pre- we prevented unless we have very firm, very firm facts that happen. So then it becomes a little bit of a um, interpretation game. Right? Okay, I put this antivirus, which stopped this, this, this virus that happened to other people, which make other companies lose a million dollars. It becomes more tangible, but in the meantime, in that language, the, the risk is lost. Right? I got these hackers everywhere. There's, there's North Korea, there's uh, these countries attacking each other. It's a chaos, it's a wild west out there. I think, People it naturally become a bit defensive towards to, towards cyber. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's quite threatening to everyone, to to people at home and people at businesses. So I think that's why you gain the uh, the bad reputation. Well, it's not bad reputation, the threatening reputation. And we have a number of vendors of cybersecurity that, in order to sell the services, they put the worst scenario. Huh? Yes, I agree, it could happen, but we also need to be aware of the context and and other and other surroundings in our environment, like budgeting, mature maturity, and the like. So. It's difficult to see the whole context and see the full reality mm-hmm. rather than only it's easy to see to focus on the threatening reality than see the whole context. So I think that that, that is why it gets uh, such a bad reputation in, in, uh, by the public in general. So where do you believe leaders should be focusing when it comes to the right communication to executives? I think that leaders should be focusing on hearing the needs of the executives and clearly communicating how the security, the cybersecurity strategy is supporting the business goals. Right, I'm moving away to, from telling ad executives. A good place to start is to be fully aware of the mission and vision of the company. What are the company's strategic projects in place and how cybersecurity is protecting the value and managing the risk tied to those, to those assets. Executives should also be informed on the current status of the security and the maturity. And what's their responsibility on the on the residual risks? Well, I've seen, I experienced that some technical information is delivered to the executives, and it's not translated properly to, to what they need. The board usually cares about the revenue, the risk, and the costs. And when people come and say there's, there was a hundred phishing attempts, mm-hmm. it doesn't tell what does that mean to the to the revenue or to the cost. It tells a bit of the risk. So that conversation needs to be changed. Now, on, on this bit, one of the biggest challenges that I face with executives is the idea that cyber is not important, delivery is more important, or the cyber is close progress. It's, it's quite challenging uh, because I think that they consume financial resources and they therefore have a large impact on the revenue. I think, for example, in that side, I will craft my communication to make clear how cyber supports not only the executives, but the business to protect the revenue, reduce risk, uh, meet compliance and lawful requirements that be invested on the executives. So it's more about what's in for them as well and what's in what's for the benefit of the company, not only the benefit for cyber. So do you think, uh, give you an example, Shane, the security dude comes in, tries to explain, oh, look, these are all the things that we've, all the IPs that we've blocked and we've done this and, oh, we've bought this new threat intelligence platform, blah, blah, blah. Do you think when those sort of conversations are happening, 
the executives are just like, they're not really listening at that point because A, they have no clue what he's going on about, but then B, they've kind of lost him. And again, he hasn't really brought proper context to the conversation. Do you think that's where it's becoming, I don't know, quote unquote, leaky funnel then? Because I get I get the idea, but they're not the execution is wrong in terms of how they're going about trying to deploy their message in a way that ultimately these executives are going to want to care about. Is that where you're seeing a lot of people just blatantly going wrong? I completely agree. And, and again, I think the foundation of this is, is coming out from the technical uh, the technical um, discipline rather than the strategy discipline. Um, and I, I will only use this message, uh, this more technical message, if the person hearing me is technically aware of what I'm talking about. If you go back, sometimes even CIOs don't know fully know the technicals because they use strategic. Mm-hmm. Coming to them, uh, to the executives and say, we bought this money and we implemented this technology that it protects us from this. Even that doesn't have much value. No. The, the value is when we make clear how is this investment protecting the business and protecting the value that we hold. Um, call it financial, call it reputation, call it customer information. What is the, the, the direct link between their investment and, uh, and a gain for the company? And it may be that there's no need for any technical chat. It's just a very overhead overview of the strategy and the results of this thing that we placed. What's the result in the company? I think it's one of the biggest challenges of finding the people that are able to have that chat, that they can move between the technical, the people, and the, and the strategic uh, point of view. Do you think it's just because these people are techies and they actually enjoy technology and they get really excited like a like a kid in a candy shop, for example, people that are really into cars, they'll talk about exhaust and, uh, I don't know, twin turbos and, and things like that. And there's probably some people that know a lot more stuff than me. But when they start talking about this type of stuff, you're like, oh, I've lost you. Like they're just focusing more on the finer details rather than the overall picture. Cool, what does the overall car do? And I sort of see the same approach in security as well. Like these people probably – they probably did progress through the ranks. They started off as a developer and then they've moved their way sideways and then upwards and then got into more of a leadership role. So they do come from that heavily technical background. So they, they love it and they live and breathe it. But then they're also at their own detriment then as well, because it's focusing so much on that. They can't actually get their main point across, which is focusing on, like you said, the revenue, the risk, the costs, and less on the bells and whistles of the technology they've just spent $3 million on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I fully agree. Like, I, I understand the passion for technology. I have it myself. As I grow a little bit older, my passion is getting somewhere else, more in the people. I feel, feel that people are, have a passion for technology. And if that's the bread and call, then stick to it because it's better to be a specialist in an area and be very good at that, but try to move in something that is not really for, for you. Because at that point, it limits your capacity to excel, to be recognized in that area. Uh, but if you have to do it, then maybe mix that, that passion for technology in a way that you can convince or influence the people hearing about your message. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs comes to mind. I'm sure, I, I'm not fully familiar with him, but I'm sure that he was a passion for technology, but he also was able to connect emotionally with people. Now, I was hearing the, the story, the TEDx story about something like PC and, and Mac and iPhone. When you get a PC, I like PCs because it's technically viable, give me what I want and I'm easily customizable. But the way that iPhone sells it is a full experience. They create great experiences, people, experiences that, that help uh, people to do f- jobs faster and easier and easier to understand. And they have good technology. Which one do you sell better? Mm-hmm. It's the one that is easier and, and they have more connection with people. So if you have to move, or people that are in a technical space have to move into the people space, so just start to learn more about, I would say, empathy, about getting more uh, into the people's mind, into the people's mindset, into their communication, and to uh, and, and give the importance of emotional intelligence as well as uh, emotion con- connection, because uh, using the mind is very useful for cert- certain things. It's very useful to get certain results, certain metrics, certain technical aspects. But making a change in people, particularly on behaviors, is an emotional thing. It's, it has to do very little with a mental state unless they're fully on the, on the mentality side. Yes. Mm. So I'd like to ask a final question and sort of face for the last part of your interview is you mentioned security marketing for dummies. So can you unpack what, in, what engaging stakeholders in adding and protecting value using deep listening and still remaining humble means? Yeah. So, well, of course, the tone of our conversation that I was trying to give as a value to your podcast is mindfulness and empathy and listening to the person can be applied to cybersecurity. 
if uh, security practitioners with security practitioners need to be mindful and present to listen to what our customers need from us, our stakeholders, and support them with a solution to the problem or inform what's the risk that they are undertaking. Because many remaining risks will need to be signed off by someone. One of the most important considerations when delivering a message is to use the language that the audience will understand and they're comfortable with, even if it's bad news, even if it's a compromise, even if it's something bad that happened. It is important to remain humble as we cyber people tend to speak at people mm. rather than to people, mm. expecting that they will understand the context of our own experience and knowledge rather than their experience of the listener, rather than their context. My key message is it's about them. It's not about us. And by being open and shifting the message to be understood by the audience and remaining humble will bring us a credibility that it's missing in the security space. It's definitely an industry that I've seen uh, opposed to potential other industries. Like I don't know a lot about financial services. So I've got a few firms that work with me on those types of questions, but I've never felt that they treated me like I was a moron because I didn't understand. And you can be across it. I'm obviously not a specialist in that area. That's why I'm going to them to get advice. But I still do feel on the security side of things, like you said, there's that can sometimes come across a bit overbearing sort of approach. Well, you don't understand what I'm talking about. You must be a fool. And that's not necessarily the case. This is something I've seen predominantly in this industry. Why do you still think that is? I think it might be the frustration that people have with explaining the risk on, on the technicalities of the risk. And I think the easy way to explain that is by uh, building stories. Build a story that the people will understand. Build a context. Now build the whole environment so people will be able to understand your message. When people say, I don't understand you, they yell again, I say this. No, I don't understand yeah, you. Yeah. I say this. But that is going nowhere. The, the, the way is to shift the language into something that is understandable by then. Get, out, get away from the frustration. If, if someone in front of you is frustrated, it's, uh, if, it's, if it's frustrating the practitioner that the people in front of them is not listening it's, or not understanding, it's probably the fault from the people conveying that message, from the practitioner telling that message. It's not the mm-hmm. people's fault that they don't have the context or not the knowledge really. that we have. How, how, how would they know it though? It's not their field. Exactly. And it's, and it's exactly, and we get, we are immersed in this world. Like, uh, I'm not sure if other people do it, but I'm in this role and in this field because I love it. I spend home time and, and business time going to news and the like, because I really like it. I really love doing this uh, since I was a kid, but other people might not. So mm, how do you explain like someone? Job. Yeah, that, well, to me, it doesn't, it, it's just funny that you say that because someone is saying on Monday, oh, it's Monday. And I'm like, yes, it's Monday. <laughs> like, well, you and I have that response. Yeah, there we go. Beauty of finding your passion, right? It's coming to work. It's like, yes, I'm back. I'm back mm-hmm. to finish what I didn't finish on, on Friday. Um, what is that? Like, how do I give more context to these people to allow them to make a better decision? So uh, many times it will be their decision. How can I help them to make a better decision? What information do they need that they are missing that I'm not giving to them that will enable them to, mm-hmm. to make a decision or make this thing that they want to do happen? It always yeah. feels like people in this industry need to have a comprehensive understanding on how actual people work. I don't mean uh, (laughs) configuring firewalls. And I think that's something that I personally get asked a lot because again, we're bridging that gap. And I think it's because understanding people actually studying behavioral science, sociology, consumer buying, actually studying those things and then, and a structural theory is another one to get, like you said, that context around people, because where I sort of see a lot of downfall is how to what's that book called? Win, win friends and influence people. It's those types of mechanisms that I, I see lacking and lagging behind in this field. And I think that I constantly see discredited for it's something that will actually help propel uh, the security division forward because you've got someone at the coalface, someone like yourself that actually understands people and how to actually get an outcome by speaking to them in the right way, the right language, by not undermining them, by actually understanding what their frustrations are and then bridging that gap between bringing the security side of it and the business side of it to actually get a solution. So that's something that I think people listening can go away and think about because it's what's going to push you from being a good practitioner to a great practitioner. When people like us get a lot of technicality, we use a certain point of the brain. It's at the left point of the brain. It's all the logical, mathematical, calculated risk. But when it comes to communications, it's more of a creativity sort of side. 
if anyone is involved heavily on one side of the brain or the other, well, you either have the very technical people, very good at what they do, but not communicating well, or you have the very good communicators and artists, which handle computers. So how do you train either either extreme or if not extreme, how do you how do you deal with uh, either way, either aspect of, of this spectrum of how they use the brain? And I think it comes from will. People need to want to do this. If you were an artist that don't know anything about computers and you want to learn, you get into a course, right? You get into a, how do you use computers? How do I use cybersecurity? How do you use mail? If you are a cybersecurity practitioner, you probably go to Toastmasters or uh, any sort of meetups or something that you meet people outside of your own field of expertise to know how people think. One of the things that really helped me as well to understand the business better is when I completed a certification called Certifying the Governance of Enterprise IT because it has some context of security, but it was more about how the whole business is governed and what's the IT part of it. And if I can summarize a certification, it's what's the support that IT is given giving to the business to deliver the mission or to get their mission or to deliver value. If they want to, they can choose training, move out, meet people to be more fluent and express what they want to do in a better way. Well, Raf, I've really appreciated you, one, for sharing your story. I think that's probably the, one of the most vulnerable episodes we've ever had. So I really appreciate that. And I think there's a lot of things that I personally gain from hearing your story, and I'm sure other people will as well. And really talking on a granular level on the comms stuff, because it's something that I think people do need to pay attention to because it is incredibly important. So I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge and your wisdom there. If people do want to get in touch with you, how can they go about doing that? Well, there's two ways. I have a vanity domain. It's raf at rafaelchayang.com or LinkedIn is also a good way to reach me. Thank you so much for taking the time. Again, I think our listeners will get a wealth of knowledge out of this episode. So I really appreciate you chatting with me. Oh, thank you for your time. And, and what you're doing is, is of great value to anyone trying to get into cyber. You are basically compressing knowledge from a number of experts uh, experiencing cybersecurity in an easy format to digest. I think that's commendable. So congratulations and thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time, Wids. Thanks, Raf. No worries. Thanks, Arisa. Thanks for tuning in. As always, we hope you got some new ideas or ways of thinking from this episode. And remember, you can always reach out to our guests if you do have more questions. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and we always love to hear your feedback. So leave a review on iTunes and we might just give you a shout out on a future episode. You can find me on LinkedIn as well as on at I am Carissa Breen on Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to know more about how we help tech companies, check out carissabreenindustries.com. Until next time, stay safer.